Hey, hey, it's your girl, Carla Renata, a.k.a. the Curvy Film Critic. We got mermaids, we got blue notes, and we got the farewell with Lulu Wang. Stay right there. You're tuned into Black Hollywood Live, the world's first digital broadcast network devoted entirely to urban entertainment and pop culture. Tune in right now. Hey, hey, everybody. Sorry we're getting started a little bit later today. We had some technical difficulties, and we meaning me. I had to laugh about it. I really did. But welcome back to The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata here at Black Hollywood Live, episode 67. We have so much to talk about. I don't want to waste another minute of your time. First up on the schedule is an interview that I did with director Sophie Huber and jazz musician Terrace Martin about a film that she directed called Blue Note Records, Beyond the Notes. It gets very heated and very intense, and it's mostly Terrace because Terrace kind of like hijacked the interview, but that's all right. Sophie got her, 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 she got some stuff in there too. So take a listen to that right now. The most surprising to me when I saw this documentary was the fact that I didn't realize that hip-hop came into existence as a result of the instruments being taken mm-hmm. out of the schools. So I knew about the bebop, but I didn't know about the hip-hop. Yeah, I'm a product of that. That's how I know I, Yeah, and I learned it through tennis. What are your feelings about the fact that this genre of music grew out of the government shutting down a form of the arts in terms of music, instrumental music rather, and taking it out of the schools? Do you feel that hip-hop would have existed had that not happened? I feel like there's everything else when black folks get a hold of something, they take it away from us. Every time they take something away, our restrainers, we end up making gold out of plastic. That's just what, that's just what we do. They took the instruments out to school, and we were just left with records, and we, you know, we started messing with them records, and those became our instruments. The two turntables and the mixer and the MC at that park in the South Bronx, that, that became our sanctuary, and we grew from there, you know what I'm saying? So we're looking on the government trying to fuck with it. <laughs> you dig? Now all your kids fucking with it. I, I kind of love your outlook on that, yeah, Terrence. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah. Sophie, being from the Swiss, from a little town called Bern, Bern. How, did, how did you find it? Just wrong. What are we doing? <laughs> how did you become familiar with the genre of jazz? First of all, my dad had Blue Note Records and jazz. Like everything he played or they played at home was jazz, French, chanson, and classical music. So that, that was all that played in our house. And there's amazing jazz festivals all over Switzerland, but even in, in my town of Bern, which is the capital, but nobody knows it, and it's very small. <laughs> okay, um, well, most capitals of, of countries or cities are yeah. in small towns, yeah. But uh, my sister was an usher at the jazz festival, so I was like 10 years old, and she would get me in, and, and I heard Sarah Vaughan and Dizzy Gillespie. Well, they didn't get me into the Ella Fitzgerald, but she played there too. I heard this music from a, from an early age, and sort of with the, you know, referencing that my dad had for it. What was the first record that you heard, the first jazz record that you heard for both of you, and what's your favorite one, your first and your favorite? The one that sticks to mind that my father had was uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Life at Cafe Bohemia. And, you know, we listened to that so many times this week. I have a special love for Thelonious Monk and uh, and Bob Powell. My first Blue Note Jazz album, uh, it was an album called Something Else by Cannonball Adderley, and uh, they played Autumn Leaves on it. I bought it on a, a cassette tape from a place called Platypus Records in Santa Monica in the 90s. Ooh, I remember that one. Remember Platypus? Ooh, honey, you don't. 
dug it out. I, you I, said platypus. I'm like, oh platypus, no. And I bought I bought the cassette. I remember getting on the bus. This this is maybe the third, fourth day of ninth grade, so the fourth day of me playing the saxophone. And I remember popping that tape in and just being zoned out to that. My my favorite anything by Jackie McLean is my favorite. That's just my favorite artist on Blue Nine. One of my heroes, you know. Something else. Autumn leaves, love for sale. This film is funded not through one American dollar. We, you know, we tried to get funding in this country, but it was very difficult. Why, why was it so difficult, you think? They get brand new, they get funny. Everybody's for the culture when it's popping, and then when it ain't cracking, they step away. Just, just like when you go play music in Europe and everywhere else, they clap after the solos. They, they appreciate you a little different than the place where the shit come from sometimes. Just to piggyback upon what Terrence said, there was a, a part in the movie, and I can't remember which artist said this, but one of the artists talked about the fact that real hardcore kind of guttural jazz comes from pain. It comes from the type of pain and the angst that we as a people, black people in this country, experience, and it's an outlet for it. That really resonated with me because... I've heard, I'm not a big jazz aficionado, I, I love it, but that was the first time that I ever heard why the sound is the sound explained to me. We know that jazz is an art form, all music is an art form, regardless of what genre it is, I think, in my yeah. opinion. Since this was a, a love of yours and you really resonated with this particular yeah. genre, so much so that you made a documentary about it and you didn't use one American dollar, as you said, to fund it. Well, I, I would have taken it. I, I'm not saying you wouldn't have taken Child money is money. It all spend the same way. It's green. So I, I do. You know what I'm saying? So I know you would take it. But having said all of that, I just wanted to know, what does the music mean to you? Yeah. That's a tricky question. I know it is. See, the word jazz is such a strange thing, really. Especially dealing with these kind of documentaries and because these attack the art world. I think subconsciously we're all trying to get it. The ones that have now grasped the knowledge of it are just trying to get away from calling it. I don't even separate the two no more. Because I don't even know what the difference is no more. Mm -hmm. Sonically, I don't know the mm -hmm. difference because I made a living of doing hip-hop, but I always put the saxophone in. So to me, jazz, when I think of jazz, can I keep it real? When I say hear the word jazz? Keep it real. When I think of jazz, I think of attitudes like Brian from Marcellus, man. Now I think of people that aren't even present in real time. Going back to you said art and art, it is an art. When I think of jazz now, and when I go to Europe, it's this upper echelon of some shit. When it's shit from the ghetto. Right. This the turf music. Right. So going back to the Branford thing and being in the now, mm. I don't like the word jazz because the motherfuckers that's representing that word, I don't like them. And I don't like and how them being I, I don't I don't like how Branford Marcellus being one of the jazz guys everybody called jazz went on there and talked shabby about mm. other black men. Okay. Yeah, I don't I'm like wrong. that because if you yeah, if, if you in the now and you gonna say anything about another black man doing anything, if that's what jazz is, fuck you and fuck your jazz. Ooh, okay. <laughs> you kept it real, honey. That's how I you? feel about it. Look, because I respect that, so it. So that, that's why I avoid that thing, jazz, and I want to call it Black American music. This conversation makes me think of a Q&A we did at the Malter Jazz Festival. He said, Terrence Martin, I'm a love, love your music. He said, do you feel your music is too intelligent for young Black Americans? I don't play music for other musicians. I play because I want to stay alive and I want to feed the souls of other young Black kids. I don't care if musicians don't come to my shows. 
I want single mamas to come to my shows. I want families to come to my shows. I want people that's committed that think about committing suicide to come to my shows. I want people that gotta turn themselves in for 10 years, maybe the last night they about to go see some shit so they could just do this 10 years and get out and, and be free and go to the next level of life. To me, when I keep hearing this word jazz, it just represents everything I'm not for because if they call the guys jazz guys like Wynn, Bramford, all the rest of these strange motherfuckers like that, then it's tricky to me because I'm not for that. What you said is unequivocally the truth mm -hmm. because the jazz grew into the bebop, grew into the hip hop, right? Mm -hmm. The bebop came from people that didn't have nothing. The hip hop came from people who didn't have nothing. Jazz is the only... Yeah. American art form in the music genre. That's it. Professor Roy Hargrove says this, rest his soul. The gospel babies from the slaves, gospel, pick and cotton, had the blues babies. Right. The blues babies had the jazz babies. Right, absolutely. The absolute. jazz, the funk, the R&B, the boom, 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 go back, mix it up, have the hit. It was, absolutely. We're we saying, we saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I know that. That's why we I'm like, come on, say Stop playing. <laughs> Stop playing, said, come on, St. Louis. Right, right. Yeah, come on, fried rice. Stop playing. You know what I mean? Ah, Sophie called me fried rice. Ooh, you are hilarious. Yo, but all, all, all jokes aside, and, and you know, I'm not saying this to bash anything. What I am saying, what I am, what, what I do, my point is always to get across. I want to bash any form of hate. Right now, anything speaking against homies and human beings holding hands. We don't need that right now. Let's inspire. Let's motivate. Let's not down talk. When the press asks you something crazy about something like that, just keep pushing. And since we're talking about jazz, that's where I'm at. We got some real soldiers out here. We got we got elders like we got Benny Goldson out here. Jimmy Heath is out here. Herbie Hancock. I was about to say Herbie Hancock. Wayne, I'm, I, Wayne I Shorter. Wayne Shorter is out here. Yeah. Like the generation I love was the Roy Hargrove generation with Nicholas Payton, Antonio Hart, Kenny Garrett, Mulgrew Miller, Stephen Scott, Christian Najee. McBride. Jeff Tane Watts, Brian Blade. It's like we got all these mentors and strong leaders out here that's pushing us up. Danilo Perez, even John Patitucci. We got a whole area of cats that do follow the lineage of the jazz that's pushing positive things and they're going hard. And we got some haters that keep us in the box too. We're going to keep pushing. I do this because I love it. Mm. So I don't play politics. Mm -hmm. Both of you, how do you think we can keep the peace? Yeah, keep the peace and keep the genre, keep the genre moving, keep it alive, keep the history there. Because, it's moving. Because nothing, the thing about history is if you don't acknowledge what was broken about the history in the first place, it keeps repeating itself. So if in the music industry we don't acknowledge where this genre came from, then it doesn't continue to get passed down. So how can we keep it continuously moving in that regard? It's moving full speed ahead. You know, when you hear J. Cole, when you hear Kendrick Lamar, it's moving. It's moving at the highest levels. It's moving right now. One thing that this documentary does, it, it makes you want to dig in the history in general. Mm -hmm. You start wanting to just find out other shit that you, man, let me find a table man. If I learned so much about the blue note, let me just, it makes you want to search, search, search. So I, I think once people just search, they'll know it's, it's still, it's there. I'm listening to it every day. When I hear the young artists hurt, I'm hearing jazz then. Mm, yeah, her. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When Blue Nose was reborn, when the label was reborn, and the new label head took on Nora Jones. Yeah, Bruce Lombard. Nora Jones kind of just redefined what it is. Because up until that point, if it was considered quote-unquote jazz, it was if you were a female, it was mostly... People would think about Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn. They would think about the vocalists. They would be, think about the female vocalists. They wouldn't think about females in the jazz genre as musicians. 
and they existed. There was a whole plethora of them that existed, right? There were female big bands out there doing their mm -hmm. thing. But Nora Jones, for whatever reason, it was cool because Nora Jones was doing it and she was a chick, you know what I'm saying? So I really, I appreciated that. I appreciated, I, I appreciated you bringing that to people's attention because a lot of people don't recognize that and they don't know. Well, I mean, it did, you know, to sort of go back to your earlier question, mm -hmm. like what I, what is really important to mm -hmm. me with the film is, and what I try to focus on when I when I made it, because it's a lot of history to put into 90 minutes, you know, these 80 years and but thousands you did of it. records, that it would be in a format that appeals to younger people or people who don't necessarily know about that music, you know, but that, that it gives them access and that they, Terry says in the film, you know, he heard the Tribe Called Quest and then he went back to look at, you know, Herbie Hancock records or, you know, mm -hmm. it got him into jazz and that the generation now understands, I mean, the younger people understand where hip-hop com comes from and what is out there and how Un Poco Loco comes on by Bob Powell. Mm -hmm. It always just fills me with energy, I can't say, you know, it, it just gives me power and that's from 1956 or something. Absolutely. And it's timeless. And people just have to, especially Americans, have to start understanding the immense wealth they have and then celebrate that, that culture. I think that your documentary, Blue Notes Beyond the Notes, Blue Note Records Beyond the Notes, will help and aid greatly in doing that. It was very well done. It was very entertaining. It went really quickly. And for those who are jazz aficionados, they're going to like lose their mind over it and for those that don't even know what it is they're going to lose their minds too before a completely different reason you know mm -hmm. what i'm saying so i think that does it for us y'all thank you this <laughs> thank is a very invigorating <laughs> conversation it got all intense i was like oh what's happening but thank you it's all good thank you so let me just let you in on the side joke that happened during that interview. But before I do that, thank you so much, Sophie Huber and Terrace Martin, for sitting down and talking to me about Blue Note Records, Beyond the Notes. It is a documentary. It is in art house theaters right now. I think only in New York and L.A., but you may want to check your, your listings on Google and, and double-check that. But I'm almost positive it's in L.A. and New York, and it's slated for a wide release at a later point. But they were teasing me and calling me fried rice because I had just come back from St. Louis, Missouri, eating some fried rice where we have the best fried rice in the country and not boiled rice with peas and carrots. And so we had this whole discussion about that before the interview, and that's why they were teasing me, calling me fried rice in St. Louis. So I just want to clarify that. But you guys, this movie... It's such a great, great film. If you're a jazz aficionado, you're going to love it. If you don't know anything about jazz, you're going to learn so much from it. As you could tell from the interview, it is really, really, really a stellar piece of cinema. And I highly recommend checking it out if you have the chance. Blue Note Records, Beyond the Notes, produced by Mirror Films, directed by Sophie Huber. All right. So, Lulu Wang. I love me some Lulu Wang. Lulu Wang and I became, um, we started following each other on Twitter. And I love her. She is such a brilliant filmmaker. She's a, a smart cookie. And, and her knowledge about the cinema and her knowledge in terms of, and, and not her knowledge, but her, her inspiration and her um, fortuitness about bringing her story to light is really something wonderful. We It's so nice to see a story about other cultures and other people other than black and white. You know what I mean? We're just now starting to, to delve into stories that center around Asian people and around 
Latin people and around even disabled people. There's a disabled character that's on General Hospital right now. I love that that we're doing that in this country right now and opening up our diaspora and our way of thinking to check out these different diasporas of people. But having said that, I had this interview in a roundtable situation. So you're going to hear a voice that's not mine, and that will be another journalist in the roundtable. Um, and we spoke to Lulu Wang about her film, about her culture, and about the disparity the disparity in regards to um, filmmakers, particularly women filmmakers and critics in the industry. Take a listen. I'm hoping that we get to a day where it isn't female filmmaker and male filmmaker, it's just filmmaker. So do you feel, what, how do you feel about this whole dysfunction thing that's happening in the filmmaking world as it pertains to female film critics yeah. and female filmmakers? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you completely because, you know, I think craft is colorblind. When I'm approaching a film, I look at all kinds of films as references and, and more films that are interesting in terms of style, right? And I don't necessarily look at a film based on the culture. That It's more about how do I frame a shot? What are some of the family films that inspire me? How do I do comedy in a way that hasn't been done before? How do I show pathos and humor in the same frame? And I can draw from, you know, all kinds of influences. So I think it's tricky when someone says, how do you make a Asian American family drama? To me, Asian American isn't a genre, you know, it's a filmmaking. It's a human. It's a human. It's a type of human. What's a white drama look like, you know? <laughs> I, I, I don't, those filmmakers don't go into telling a story, thinking about identity. In many ways, when I was a Approaching this film about my family, I just set out a film to tell a story about a, a granddaughter and a grandmother, a, a film about family and about loss and about grief and about guilt when you leave. We don't look at ourselves every day and go, oh my gosh, I'm Asian. <laughs> you know? I overstand. Yes, I overstand. I don't look in the mirror and go, oh, I am a black girl. What have happened? Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. No. And how do I, you know, do something really, you know, Asian today? Um, I, I think about uh, Hannah Gatsby Nanette because I watched it recently and I loved it so much and she said that she's had feedback where people go there was just not enough lesbian content in your show and she's like I'm, I'm confused I was on stage the entire time <laughs> you know and it's like yes the, the story is, is about an Asian American family because that is the texture of my life that is who I am Every story I tell is an Asian American story because I am, that is my voice. I can't escape it. Yeah, uh, there's such an authentic sense of camaraderie within the central family in the farewell. I was wondering if there was anything special you did to create that environment on set or offset in terms of getting your cast to bond with each other. Because when we're hanging out with the family, you're like, I'm just looking in a window in these people's lives. You know, Mike Lee is a huge reference for me. I'm very inspired by his films. He gets like 40 days to have the characters live together in a, in a house and then he turns the camera on them I was not afforded that luxury <laughs> so I asked my producers I said I want to do Mike Lee and I get 40 days they were like you can have one dinner and so that's what I got I got a dinner where I brought everybody together ordered a bunch of food everybody sat around the table and we worked out some blocking with camera but it helped you know it helped to introduce people I encouraged people outside of um, the set of the production to meet up on their own so the woman who plays Nanai she would meet up with my great aunt who plays herself in the movie and so 
so they would walk through the park and they would call each other sister and just really got to know each other as real sisters. And you feel that chemistry. Hopefully on the next one, I'll get even more time for Give my- you those 40 yes. days, baby. Yeah, right. I know, right? More of a budget. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be asking on behalf of our friend. She lost her Yeah, yeah. Um, my parents and I speak Chinglish. We speak a lot of Chinese with <laughs> English words thrown in there. In order to actually balance it out a little more, I felt like it was okay to have the parents and her speak primarily in English. Also because I think it helps better to illustrate the juxtaposition of like her relationship with her family in America and then her relationship with them in China. It was also on account of the fact that Aquafina doesn't really speak Chinese very well. She had to learn a lot of it for the movie and we had a dialect coach and so I ended up simplifying a lot of the Chinese for her. The interesting thing for me every time I go back to China is that it's this interesting marriage of the familiar and the foreign. The familiar being memories and nostalgia and dreams and photos and stories, you know, that you've heard from family. And then the foreign being that it's a foreign country. You know, I go back there, I don't really speak the language enough to understand the news, to understand all the conversations. I miss out on a lot of culture because I don't understand jokes. And then everyone just laughs at me. (laughs) And um, also you're bombarded with sensory overload. There's all of these sights and sounds and smells. And so I wanted to bring all of that into the movie because, yeah, I do. I, I, I sometimes yearn to go back home, whatever that means, right? To my childhood, to my idea of a place. That place doesn't exist anymore and maybe never really existed. In the African-American community, we have a thing where we don't necessarily like to tell people if they're sick either. Mm. So I wanted to find out if Nana has seen the film yet. Oh. She still doesn't know. Wow. Oh, she still doesn't know. Mm-hmm. That's why she hasn't seen the film, so we oh. can't tell her. Have the other family members seen it? Just my parents and my, my aunt, the woman who plays Gugu. Mm-hmm. Her family was in uh, L.A., and so they saw it. What did they it. think? It's hard to tell. She was really congratulatory and very like proud of me. And I said, what, what do you think? And she said, well, the people around me were crying their eyes out. I think it's difficult for them because it's weird to see your, your own experience represented on screen, but from a different perspective. And so I'm sure for them it's a process. Also, my aunt doesn't speak English, mm-hmm. so she couldn't understand all of the parts that mm-hmm. uh, were in English. I was good until that they got in the cab and they were going away. I was good until that moment. And then I kind of lost it. And I was a blubbering mess in the last row at that theater. I think it's the Echoes Theater mm. in, at Sundance. I was in the last row and I was sitting back there like this. A mess had gone through all my Kleenex. <laughs> hot, buttered mess. There and were so many tears at that screening. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was like, ah, just, you know, and, pe- and the people around me were crying. Everybody was crying, but everybody was trying to act like they weren't crying. Everybody was trying to, like, be cool. You know, like, I'm not not doing anything. I was so glad that once the narrative of the film stopped and then you showed Nanai in real time, ooh, child, I was so relieved because I was a wreck. Mm -hmm. I was. But that's a testament to your filmmaking. Thank you very much. That it it touched hearts and it touches lives. And it's a human story. It's not just an Asian story. It's not just a story of some people that live in China. It's a human being story. So thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously been a massive, massive dream for any independent filmmaker to uh, premiere their film at Sundance. And so just getting in was so surreal and such a dream. It's such a loving atmosphere because it's all film lovers. It's a very special place. It's like like a winter camp. Um, <laughs> and I was there the year before with my production company and they had another film at the festival. 
just loved it. Everybody kept saying, you'll be coming there, Mag, you know, but I didn't want to think about it. And so then actually being there and the reactions, I don't know, it was just really surreal. Yeah, it was really surreal because you also, in a way, like, feel like, oh, you're so loved here and you're so well taken care of. They're like family. You know, Sundance, they're people who love movies and they get this kind of a movie. But is it going to work in the rest of the world? And so that was always in the back of my head was enjoy this moment because, you know, it may not be the same once we're out of Sundance and be prepared for that. So. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your real family, they, they look like they're very, a very colorful bunch. <laughs> the karaoke scene. Why did you decide to include that? And of all the stories about your family that you could have told, why this particular story? The bride in the Japanese mm-hmm. room singing the karaoke. Mm-hmm. That actually happened. Uh, <laughs> that was one of the moments in which I was so I was sad and I wanted to cry, but I was also just laughing on the inside. <laughs> Um, And it's one of those things I think everybody's doing their own thing, so nobody's paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the kind of thing that caught my eye, where I was just like, this is, is anyone, this is ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think because, you know, when it happened, I immediately said, like, my family is ridiculous. This is what I've been saying all along. And it sort of summed it up in that way, where I'm like, only my family could do this. This is why I love screwball setups, because life is filled with so many screwball setups. (laughs) Um, and so it was, I think that this particular scenario brought all of the things I love about my family, which is like the range of emotions all into one place in a very short period of time. It sort of just consolidated all of these emotions, all the fights that my mother and I have ever had about my career and my life and my choices and all the bad grades I got, all of that, you know, came out during this week and somehow got attached to my wanting to say goodbye and wanting to tell my grandmother the truth. And uh, my dad, you know, the way that he deal often deals with things by not talking about them and just like drinks and all of those things in one place, I think just makes it like a real really ripe story. Do you think that's an old school way of thinking? Because I feel like our generation is much more open about things and the generation, the couple of generations before us seem to be a little more, like I remember telling my mother that I was going to go to therapy at one point and she had a nervous breakdown. She was like, you don't tell other people outside the family, the family business. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. Um, although my parents themselves are storytellers. My mother's a writer. My father was a diplomat in the Soviet Union. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, so he's very open. We just had a dinner where New York Times was photographing and writing a story about it and the reporter came up to me halfway through and she was like I love your dad he's awesome I was like well you know it's because he's a diplomat she's like I know in the Soviet Union he told me the whole thing I was like oh god (laughs) you know and she would sometimes ask him questions and he would start to answer and I was like dad dad she's a reporter just just I know you've had a few drinks but like keep in mind it's gonna be in the New York Times like next week so you you might want to shut that down (laughs) yeah exactly like not the truth here um yeah. That is pure comedy. Yeah. The USSR, wow. Does he speak Russian? Yeah, fluent. Do you speak? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. I was curious what the most challenging part of adapting the story first for This American Life was like, and then making that transition from taking the This American Life piece and turning it into a script and then turning it into a feature. Well, this is a story, a very intimate story that works for radio. How do you get it to work on a bigger scale? I didn't always have the answers to certain questions like, um, okay, in the radio story, the protagonist is not very active. And in my real life, the protagonist is not active. That is the challenge. She cannot be an active protagonist because the very premise of the movie is for her to be inactive, Mm -hmm. is to not talk, to not do anything crazy. And so I think that there was the push to go, well, that's not going to work for a movie because for a movie, the protagonist has to be doing something. Mm -hmm. We can't just have her sitting around. Anything that I made her do felt very artificial, Mm -hmm. right? And so I just 
was trying to balance like that tension. So then how do you make it visually interesting when you don't have an active protagonist? How do you carry the tension from scene to scene without people feeling that it gets repetitive? Just how do you do all of that visually? How do you put the humor visually when you, you know, can't just tell a joke? And I didn't want to rely on characters doing a shtick or telling a joke. What's next for you? Um, I'm working on a couple things. Uh, since I cut my brother out of this movie, uh, <laughs> he, he was working at the time and he didn't come to the wedding. Um, so I made her an only child. Um, I'm doing a TV show that I just set up around him. He's a chef. Uh, so it's about a young Chinese-American chef working in a very uh, interesting industry that's filled with toxic male masculinity, racism, sexism, appropriation, and what is it like being um, the child of a first-generation immigrant family working in this fine dining restaurant industry. And then the other project I'm working on is a feature film that is based on a short story, and it's a very grounded sci-fi story. It still explores, continues to explore the dynamics of family, but in a near-future setting. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. Great to meet you guys. Great to meet you, too. So this is what I love about Lulu Wang. Lulu Wang shoots straight from the hip, and she is not about the BS. She really isn't. She's like, okay, ask me a question, and I will answer it for you. But she will get this look on her face. If you ask her a question that feels a little contrived or not, you know, right in the pocket, she will look at you like, why are you asking me that question? She won't say nothing, but she will look at you like you're crazy. But I kind of love her that, love her for that because she she don't play. And I, I, I appreciate her. I respect her. And I love her for that. I also love the fact that when we were talking, she talked about how she wrote a story that was a human story. It was about a granddaughter who loved her grandmother. It was about not telling a relative that they're in a dying status because if you tell them, then they start to act like they're dying. If they don't know, then they go on with life as usual. And that actually makes sense. And like I said People in my community, um, especially in my family, we do that, too. Her grandmother is still living. She's still alive and kicking. So that's a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie. But you really want to see The Farewell. It's it's a heart-wrenching, heartwarming film. And I love the fact that Lulu speaks about her character as a person and as a filmmaker in regards to making The Farewell. So The Farewell is directed by Lulu Wang, is produced by A24. Check it out. It hits theaters this week, I believe either the 12th or the 14th of July. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. All right. So closing this out today, I just wanted to address something. I posted a picture on my Twitter account. It's of a black aerial and a white aerial. And the white aerial is touching the black aerial's hair. Child, first of all, it's a cartoon. Why are people acting like mermaids are real people? Mermaids are not real people. It's a mythical creature. First of all, mermaids are mythical creatures. Second of all, The Little Mermaid is an animated feature, which is now getting to be a live action feature starring Halle Bailey. Not Halle Berry, but Halle Bailey, who is one half of Chloe and Halle, the R&B singing group, and they're both on Grownish with Yara Shahidi, which is a spinoff off of Blackish. But having said that, um, I'm kind of over all this controversy about this girl being cast as Ariel. 
you know, we had Cinderella twice. We had Cinderella on Broadway with Kiki Palmer. We had Cinderella on television with Brandy playing Cinderella. Whitney Houston was the fairy godmother. Whoopi Goldberg was her was the prince's mama. I mean, you know, we had there was a young girl that was the understudy for Elsa on Frozen who was African American. She went on. A young lady that I know named Lily Cooper has been Elphaba on Broadway and Wicked. I mean, the only thing that you can't sub out for somebody for another race is Mulan cuz Asian is Asian. Like you can't you can't have a black person pretend to be Asian. You can't have a Latin person pretend to be Asian. You, you know I mean, you know, but we've had white people pretend to be Asian. We had Mickey Rooney pretend to be Asian. We've had Kate Blanchett. Like, we've had so many people pretend to be Asian. But this is what I want to say. And we've had Tony Braxton in Beauty and the Beast playing Belle in Beauty and the Beast. And this is what I want to say about all of that and closing out. Let this little girl live her life. She has been cast in the role of a lifetime. The role of a lifetime and not for nothing, but this young lady is beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's talented and she's a good person. And I'm going to need y'all to get off her back and get your foot off her neck and let her live her life and do this movie. And truth be told, y'all can pounce on her and talk about her all you want to. The movie's still going to get made. So there's that. So. I just needed to put that in. That was my little bit of news for the day. And I had to address it because it was just ridiculous. And then somebody was online talking about why is the white Ariel touching the black Ariel's hair? It's a cartoon and mermaids are not real. Get your life. (laughs) All right. So just in closing out, I want to reiterate. I want to give a big thumbs up and a shout out to my producer, Miss Stephanie, who is gorgeous and talented and all that and a bag of chips in her own right. Her and Jonathan Helped busted their buns today to help me get this show on the air because technology was betraying me. I was frustrated. I couldn't think straight. And they pulled it together as a team with me and helped. And we all figured it out. And I'm so grateful for you. And I'm I'm about to cry. And I'm so thankful that you helped me work it out because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to cancel the show today. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everybody that's in the chat room that joined me today. Michael B., Jenna, Ray Golden, Black. Black Hacks, um, Exist in Nature Media, um, Chris Nunez, Michael B. Y'all, I, y'all are my ride or dies. I love you. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the show, please go and click that thumbs up on the YouTube channel. Hop on over to Spotify. Hop on over to iHeartRadio. Hop on over to I, iTunes and give me five stars. I'm really trying to build this, you guys, and you help me do it little by little every week. I appreciate you and I love you. That is my time. I have got to run up out of here because I have another show you can catch me over at um, after Buzz TV doing the General Hospital after show and then again a little later doing the after show for American Princess it's the finale so you really want to check that out if you like that show because it's kind of crazy and I love it too but thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart I really appreciate you next week up on the docks I have what do I have up here next week I'm going to be talking about the Lion King that's why my hair is long I'm going to be talking about the Lion King I was in the Lion King I'll tell y'all all about that next week I'm not going to take up any more time talking about that now but I'm going to talk about the Lion King and a documentary called David Crosby Remember My Name and Stuber which hits theaters this week Lion King doesn't open until the the 19th but I'm going to talk about it anyway <laughs> anyway um 
I'm your girl, Carla Renata. You can find me across all social media platforms at The Curvy Critic. You can find anything that I talk about on this show in written form at my site, thecurvyfilmcritic.com. And until next week with The Lion King, and I'll have on my tribal makeup, my Zulu makeup when I come up in here next week too. Until then, love, peace, and hair grease. I love y'all. Peace out. On behalf of our BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Black Hollywood Live, the world's first digital broadcast network devoted entirely to urban entertainment and pop culture. Check out our Black Hollywood Live YouTube page for even more great programming and amazing content. And be sure to subscribe and like our channel when you do. I'm your BHL host, Nakia Monet, and you can find me on all social media at Kiki Boom Boom or at Black Hollywood Live. Black Hollywood Live, Hollywood redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.